0: Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, etc. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lit Review. We are here with a very, very special guest. This is the fabulous Walter Ray.
1: <laughs> hey!
0: We're coming to you from Essex Junction, Vermont That's today. That's
1: correct. Yeah.
0: And before I let you introduce yourself, I will let you know that this is my grandfather
1: Yay. and my favorite guest
0: that we've ever featured. So. Yay. Welcome to The Lit Review. How are you? Thank doing?
1: you so much. I'm doing quite well thank you quite well
0: so can you tell us a little bit about you know our standard first question who are you what do you do and why
1: oh I could talk for days and days and days about that Uh, who am I Um, I am 84 years old which is hard to believe because I'm so young and cute looking Um, (laughs) and I've had a really really cool life. I feel very fortunate and very blessed to be at this age and still kicking. Mm -hmm. I still work uh, 40 hours a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've come a long way. I was born in 1934. Uh, My mother had 11 children Mm -hmm. and um, I am the sixth one. I'm right in the middle. And lots of us are gone now. Um, But I don't know how to how to start. Um, I was put on the state. I was a state kid when I was five years old. So I don't remember a lot about what happened at home, what my mother provided at home. Um, there wasn't a mother and a father, hunky-dory kind of thing. It was just, I remember her. We called her Ma and a bunch of kids running around. Uh, but when the state came and got... Uh, Out of 11, I think six of us went on the state. Um, I lived in a bunch of foster homes, um, and I ended up at nine years old at the worst possible foster place you could end up with, and that was the Pittman's. Um, No one had, it seems, a color up until we went to the Pittman's. (laughs) (laughs) And she was from, I think, Mississippi, and he was from Georgia. Um, she was a very, very black woman, meaning black in color, and he was lighter skinned. And I think he kind of pulled the wool over her eyes all of her life or something. But it was weird because uh, my brothers and sisters and I had been living apart, and my mother wanted us to be in one place so that she could make one trip to visit us. So the Pittmans had put in for state kids, so all of a sudden these brothers and sisters I knew little about We're all dumped at the Pittmans, where we got to know each other. Um, And they were just the meanest, worstest, I don't even want to think about it. But I remember one day I was reading something in the paper about Jim Crow. And I said to her, what is Jim Crow?
0: (laughs) 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 You're you're in the North,
1: In the North. Mm -hmm. We're in uh, Massachusetts. And she, I can't remember the answer. I know I wanted to know what it was, and she said something like, oh, it's something to do with colored people, was all she said. Um, I always wanted certain things. I think I was born with this desire to be somebody and have lots of nice things and everything. And we didn't have that there at, at, at the Pittmans, um, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going with this. Um, but we tried our best to to be nice at the Pittmans, but the only thing they knew how to do was beat us and be mean to us and so forth. And when I was 15, I was given the uh, option of going out to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, yeah, I'll go. I want to get away from the Pittmans. Um, but when I left there, we had kind of this education about blacks from the south light versus dark um the southern black people were better than the northern black people um just all these things that at the time didn't matter to me or whatever but they they stay with you and then when you get older and certain situations come up you go oh yeah that's relates to the Pittmans, or that's how I felt about Gertrude, or whatever, and, and, and Virgil their names were. But anyhow, I went to Pittsfield High School, in my graduating class there were, I think, 400 kids, and only six of us were black. Mm. Um, they were very nice to us, you know, we didn't feel anything, I probably shouldn't say that because there were incidents, but for the most part it was yeah. it was okay. Uh, I joined the Navy when I was 18 and a half, I think. I had gotten out of high school, had no place to go. And I started thinking, ooh, I'm going to go down south, and they don't like colored people down there. <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, and the first time, well, I went through boot camp. I was the only black person. And everybody kind of liked me. You know, it's, it's always in the back of your mind, you know, Are these people going to like me. or they going to whatever, whatever. But everybody basically likes me, and I went to steward school to be a steward, and a steward at that time was either black or Filipino
2: Hmm.
1: uh, in the Navy, and that's actually kind of racist. But at that age in those times, it was 1953 or 4, I don't remember, um, it's the way things were. You know, so you go in and it's the way things were, and uh, you don't argue with it. Every so often, somehow or other, a white person would put in to be a steward. And just before I checked into the barracks to for my training, somehow or other, a white person had slipped through, and this whole gang of white sailors came and pulled him out of the barracks and said, what are you, stupid?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, for the first time, I was in a in a class. I think it was for three months with. Um, they're all Filipinos and me and three blacks me, Wilson, and this other guy from Georgia. The class before us was all black, um, and they're all from the south because you didn't have to know how to read or write or whatever. And they taught you to make beds and be nice to the officers because you were like a maid or something who knows. Um, and when we finished, when I finished with that. I had a report to Norfolk, Virginia, and the boat that goes across was segregated and that's the first time I saw a sign that said colored bathroom, white bathroom, the white deck, whatever. So I was really, I thought confused, it was the first time it really hit me in the face. So I went up on the boat and just leaned on the railing and didn't go down to where the signs were. Uh, But anyhow, um, I spent time in Panama uh, in the last year I was in the Navy. I was in Bermuda, and there are lots of things that came up. But I wanted great things. I wanted nice things, and I worked really hard to get them. Uh, It wasn't always easy. um, The fact that you're black is always there. Um, One of the things Pittman told us was, no white people like you. And at some point, they're going to tell you, I don't care how friendly you get with them or how much you pal around with them, at some point, they're going to let you know that you're black and they're white. Mm -hmm. You know? uh, And that turned out to be kind of true for the the most part. Maybe they weren't really trying to tell you that you were black and they were white, but that's the way you interpreted certain things that that they said. Um, But you know, what are you going to do? Uh, anyhow, I'm (laughs) up against a stone wall, but I'm here and I think I have everything that, that I want. Um, and I'm happy, uh, take it from there.
0: He's a blessing of a grandfather. Um, (laughs) and I'm, I, I think it'll, it's even just from the way you introduced yourself. It's, it's, Maybe people have already predicted, if you don't know yet, what book we're going to talk about. But um, it's by Isabel Wilkerson, and it's The Warmth of Other Suns. And Mm -hmm. um, I have my perspective, but I'm curious for you to explain, you know, for you, what led you to read this book?
1: Well, um, I have a grandson, Miles, and I have a granddaughter, uh, Paige, who's sitting here talking to me. And Miles and I decided to drive. (laughs) (laughs) from uh, Essex Junction, Vermont to Chicago to visit Paige. So we got my trusty little truck, and I drove, and I drove, and I drove, and I drove, and I drove. And (laughs) finally, uh, we got to Chicago, and I was beat. I was just so sleepy, so I lay down on Paige's bed, and slept for I don't know how many hours, and when I woke up, Paige said, Oh, I have a book you might enjoy, uh, Papa. I know you read a lot. I've read some of it, but I haven't finished. But if you want, you can pick it up and read it. So I sort of yawned and picked it up. And I couldn't put it down. For the whole three or four days I was in Chicago. It is one fabulous book. And I'll throw in here at the beginning, it's the story of the great migration is what she wanted it to be, but that's not at all what it was to me. To me, it was like you're visiting some soft-spoken, really nice lady who sits you down with a cup of coffee and tells you the history of, of, of your race, of the black race, of the suffering, uh, everything that they went through and what they expected when they left. Um, that place, the South, that made them suffer so much. I don't get into the politics, which is what the Great Migration was, but I get into the suffering, just the horrible things that I never knew. And mm-hmm. all the years um, I, I've been on Earth, I, I was shocked, but again, it's such a soft-spoken right. <laughs> kind of, of, of thing. You, you get angry inside at some of the stuff that you read. But um, it's fascinating the way uh, she puts it all together. Um, Paige gave me the book uh, in a soft cover. Mm-hmm. And I was so moved by it, and I loved it so much, I went out and bought the hardcover. <laughs> to put it in, in my library. Um, everybody should read this. It's, it's just incredible. Uh, I used to say that... Um, during the 60s, when when the blacks were marching and riding and so forth, I didn't know a lot about it. I was up north doing stuff, and I'd read about it in the papers and things. But now, I wish I could have been there. I would have marched.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I would have gone across the bridge. Um, I would have got hit by the fire hoses. I wouldn't want to die. I don't want to be a martyr. Yeah. But I could say that I did something yeah. to help. Um, but... In all reality, I I didn't I didn't know what was going on. I was young and raising a family, and I have a lot of respect for the people who put up with with, with all of that stuff.
0: Before we before I ask you to really go into what you know who the book profiles and like what happens mm. in the in the book as she narrates it, um, can, can you tell us a little bit about you know what what was going on? You know what. Uh, You shared your experience with what you saw of Jim Crow in that moment where you see the signs. But according to the book, what do you learn from the book about the conditions for black people in the South leading up to the Great Migration as it's happening?
1: Let me, um, if I can... Absolutely. If I can. I marked some... Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Okay, it says here... The actions of the people in this book were both universal and distinctly American. Their migration was a response to an economic and social structure not of their making. They did what humans have done for centuries when life becomes untendable, or however you say that. What the pilgrims did under the tyranny of British rule, what the Scotch-Irish did in Oklahoma when the land turned to dust, what the Irish did when there was nothing to eat, what the European Jews did during the spread of Nazism, Uh, what the landless in Russia, Italy, China, and elsewhere did when something better across the ocean called them. What binds these stories together was the -the back-against-the-wall reluctance, yet hopeful search for something better any place but where they were. They did what what human beings looking for freedom throughout history have often done. They left. Okay, they left. But what did they leave? How many of these people were lynched? How many of these people had to step off of the sidewalk when a white person came by? What black people left was horrible crap that never happened to any of these white people who were looking for something better. You know, and I read things in, in this book. One thing that really got me was uh, this boy was walking down the street with his mother and she had a, a new dress or a dress on. And this, you know, uh, segregationist or whatever you call these people walked by and came back. And he said, my wife has a dress just like that and you have no business wearing it. Colored women should not be wearing dresses like, you know, my wife wears. Take that dress off now. Now. And he made her take her dress off in the street and walk home I guess in her slip and the little boy talks about how he cried and felt so bad for his mother. I think that that what black people were leaving and what they were facing was inhuman and it's still going on.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
1: know, it, it, it hasn't stopped. It might not be as much uh, as it was then um, before the Great Migration or whatever but that's what they were leaving and that's what I got when, when, when you asked what I thought they were running from and so forth. Uh, it doesn't matter the numbers or where they went, but just that they were running from suffering, yeah. from hate. I call, I just call it hate. There's um, one more thing in here that's, that's almost turned my stomach. Um, this girl went, white girl, told her dad that, um, Somewhere, I don't know where, she said this black boy had dropped a note on the floor to her. Uh, But nobody knows. He he could have fallen out of his notebook or anything. But um, she picked up this note, and I don't know what it said, and she went and told her dad that this black, this nigger, whatever this this note to her. So him, uh, the father and his friend, said, okay, we'll take care of that. So they went to his house, pulled the kid out of his bed and uh, brought him out they always throw him in a truck and tie him up and uh, the father said I'll take care of most of it and the other guy said well save some for me, you know, you get done with him I want some, so the guy uh, took the kid somewhere, I don't know beat him up, shot him you know, killed him uh, and then went and picked the other guy up and the other guy said you told me you were going to save some for me I don't want a dead nigga, you know so the the both of them took the the kid into town and told eight or ten of the people, come on, we got this guy, we're going to hang him, you know, so forth and so on, and they all said, but he's already dead, and the daughter said that she was hoping she could get in on whatever they did to him, so they got knives, and anybody that wanted to could pick up a knife and stab this dead corpse, and that's what they did, they all lined up, and stab this poor dead corpse—just horrible, you know. And again, I have to go back to the fact that she writes this in such—I don't want to say a soft tone, but just—you read it, you know—and you just go, "My God!" And it's not harsh; it's—it's—it's it's, it's just history. Um, mm-hmm. Next question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I—I I, thank you because I think there's a. The way that the civil rights movement and the movements against Jim Crow, how how history has sort of watered down, the, the, how time and and you know the the reality of like white people's control over our education system, over history books, mm-hmm. over all these things, right, makes it seem like this this was just about being able to sit at a lunch counter. Exactly. And it what like this was a horribly violent. Uh, This, I mean, you, you get out and I, you know, I'm curious for you to talk about, you know, what happened to your mother. I mean, this is, you get out and if you're a black person after slavery, right, you could get arrested and turned into a new slave through convict leasing over these, the pettiest of things, Mm -hmm. you know, not Mm -hmm. having a job, having too many kids, right? Um, Or, or uh, being, you know, quote unquote drunk or um, not stepping off of the sidewalk. This is, you know, thousands of people being lynched. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh the an assault on dignity that I hear you saying. Like this was and there was no other reason for it but that you were black.
1: Exactly. That was it. Exactly.
0: Um they didn't want your land. It wasn't it wasn't about expanding the empire. It was just like black people cannot not be slaves. We're gonna keep them under somehow. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. yeah, it w- and and the to just breathe and exist in that um, I don't, it, it blows my mind what people listen. I don't know
1: through. how they put up with it. I, I, I don't, I don't at all. Um, I don't know if I should change mm. the subject a go bit, ahead. but did you see a 12 Years a Slave, was it? Yes. Uh, Dino kept telling me to go see 12 Years a Slave and I was, well, you know, I've seen so much of that I don't want to see it, but I finally went and um, when they took that lady's kids away and sold them, that wrecked me. Yeah. It, and Every time it showed her, she was crying and unhappy. And the main dude in there said, Why are you always crying and why are you always upset? Mm -hmm. She had that wail, I think. And I just said to myself, If somebody took your four kids out from under your whatever and sold them separately and you were never going to see them again, believe me, you would wail and do Mm -hmm. something too. And that uh, I just thought about for for so long, Mm -hmm. you know, when you think about those things. uh, Yeah. How did they live? How did that woman live after that? you know mm-hmm.
0: yeah that, maybe it's a good time for you to talk about what happens in this book you know what so what did people do? you know you started by saying people left right
1: right that's what they wrote here but they they moved to Chicago um, it's mostly Chicago where most of them go um, and when they get there, I don't know if they realize it or not. it's almost as bad as it is. Down south, you can only live in certain places. But like one of them said, I got on the bus and there were white people. You know, you could sit anywhere you wanted (laughs) to. um, But you had to live in in shacks or, you know, falling down tenements and whatever. But you could get a job with one of the auto companies and make decent money. So their life got a little better, um, but by no means, you know, palatial or whatever. But then a lot of them... I don't think knew what they wanted except to get away from the suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh they didn't have a plan beyond that. Um there's a couple of things in here I I uh, uh I don't know if they I could talk about them now. But um wait a minute. Well oh, Ida May, she talks about getting uh getting up there but then not having uh let me see let me see which one is it um should I start? Um, many years later, people would forget about the quiet successes of everyday people like Ida Mae. Ida Mae was one of my favorite people in the, in the book. One of the stories is about her because it follows four, four people from horrible whatever to sneaking up north in the debates to come over welfare and pathology. America would overlook people like her in its fixation with the underclass, just as a teacher can get distracted by the two or three problem children at the expense of the quiet, obedient ones. Few experts train their sights on unseen masses of migrants like her who worked from the moment they arrived didn't end up on welfare, stayed married because that's what the fearing people of their generation did, whether they were happy or not, and managed not to get strung out on drugs or whiskey or a cast of nameless, no-count men. And it, it, it seems like the, the, the people who snuck away, as they a lot of them do in this book, because they're about to get lynched for stuff they're doing, uh, they finally get up north and everything, and I couldn't find it. But she sits on her porch one day, and there are drug dealers on the on the uh, porch outside, and she's just disgusted, saying, "What happened? You know, my dream of suffering and coming up here to make things better for them—something went wrong. What went wrong? Why is all this going on?" And like old well, Ina May mentions here, you know, we suffered to come up north, and uh, we worked, we worked hard, but why are we forgotten?
0: So what, yeah, people you've talked about, you know, the horrible conditions that folks are facing. Um, and before we get into like what they, yeah, more about what they found once they got North, what was their journey like as they were traveling North?
1: Um, mostly traveling at night. I know Ina May, um, I can't, I don't know if it was her husband or not. They picked oranges. And the the boss man that owned the orchard was giving them like three cents a bushel of oranges. And they were getting there early in the morning and picking all day. And of course they were angry. They worked hard and everything. So her husband uh, went and said, you know, we should get a nickel or or two or three cents more. And the the owner of the plantation would say, you know, who the hell are you to speak up to a white man and tell him you want more money and all this? So he told them, he told the pickers to sit down and not pick the oranges. So the guy had to pay him two or three cents more. But then he knew that he was marked, you know, to get lynched. And I think he did it twice. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then uh, he heard some people talking. So they had to pack up uh, and get a relative to drive them out of town. They had to look like nothing was going on, but they took the things they needed, wrapped the kids in blankets got into a a car and hid, you know, on the floor while the driver just took his time like he was out joyriding. You know, and it took, I think, two or three cars to get them to where they weren't safe, but there wouldn't be people looking for them. And then driving up, there were no hotels or motels that they could afford. And it was just scary. And then when they got up north to Chicago or wherever they were going, um, there was usually one relative or somebody that uh, somebody would call ahead and say, expect them, uh, you know, they're escaping or what have you. Mm -hmm. And they would stay with that relative until they could find a place of their own. But it was horrible. Um, One of the the people in here, the doctor, um, who has kind of a rough life because he goes to med school and everything, but they won't let him touch white people. Mm -hmm. Um, And his trip from wherever he was, up, he went to California was awful he would stop at hotels and he was afraid that they were uh, the policemen were going to overtake him and kill him you know so he was you know traveling only I think during the day I can't remember but he went through hell to get up to California alone in in, in a car sad
0: yeah and yeah as you're I mean as you're traveling right you can't you can't you don't know what restaurants you can eat at right. you don't know what gas stations you can use right um, i mean it's just it, it's it's amazing to me sort of that this journey north right and and this is not that long after the underground railroad um, oh no
1: no it's no it's wild in uh <clears throat> in the navy you know again every the, the outfit i was in everybody was black or filipino and it was my first time living and sleeping with all black people and it was it was fun i mean it was All of the guys had a personality and whatever, and they used to call me Youngblood. But uh, um, one night they were sitting around talking about things that had happened to them, you know, on a ship or wherever they were in different countries. And I'll never forget this one guy said that he was going from one place to another. I can't remember where. And uh, the plane stopped so they could get out and eat. And, um, of course the place where they stopped you know they black people couldn't eat so he went to the back door or something and said that he was really hungry and could he please get something to eat before the plane took off so the whoever was at the door went in and talked to the cooks or whatever and they said yeah let him sit in the back or wait so he said he sat down and the waitress brought out whatever food he ordered and he ate it and then The cook or somebody came out and smashed the dishes.
2: Oh, so petty!
1: (laughs) You know, and we were all laughing about it, but it was totally humiliating to him. And then another guy had about the same story. But they came and put a screen around him. He, he said, I sat down and I said, wow, you know, I'm in here with these people and, and they can see me and I'm going to eat my, my food, you know, and get back on the plane or wherever he was going. And he said, and all of a sudden they came and put these screens around him. So he was in there by himself. And again, it's been said a million times, all because of the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. you know, Yeah.
0: All the work and effort to go into just making you feel like Yeah. Yeah. That. Yep. And so then these folks, you know, they struggle, um, they somehow survive the South, they escape. Uh, and and we're talking, I mean, just in case it's not, we're talking about millions of people. I believe it's, oh, yeah. it's like 2.7 yeah. million or 2.2 million black people. It's the I believe the largest migration in mm-hmm. the history of the United States is actually black people leaving the South to so mm-hmm. go north. Mm-hmm. So is it a story then of, do you think it's a story of like black triumph of people... Who are successful in that? Issue?
1: No, I think it's a how-to. Hmm. What was, what happened, and what can be if you work for it? And there are a lot of examples. There are a lot of um, um, who was the black lady that I mentioned? Did I read about her in here? What's her name? Um,
0: you mentioned Ida Mae. Uh,
1: no, this is. A, she was a civil rights lady. You knew who she was, in your, Baker? yeah, 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 okay. yeah. There are people like her who work hard, who they're examples you can read about, and sometimes I say, if she can do it, I should be able to do it, hmm. you know, I saw a movie it's called um here I go, where it slips my mind all of a sudden, uh, but it's about putting people on pedestals um what is the name of that movie uh, but anyhow it says that when you get to know that person that you it's called Fault something uh, but when you get to know that person they're either stupid as hell and rotten or they're just like you
2: right Mm-hmm.
1: you know so there's no reason why um, what was I going to do with that uh you can't find somebody who you can look at and go, well, she did it, I can do it, or he did it. I should be able to do it. Mm-hmm. To get out of boot camp, you had to jump off a tower, I think I told you, and jump into the water. And I couldn't swim. They taught me to swim, but the day came and I had to jump off that tower. And I kept saying, everybody else did it, why can't I? <laughs> and the whoever was in charge said, we're going to give you one half, uh, half a minute, may, If you don't jump off, we're going to send, send you back. Like another week or two,
2: mm.
1: and I stood there and I went, "Don't!" And they turned off one light, and I jumped.
2: Wow!
1: You know, but I just said, "Everybody else did it. It's not going to kill me. I've seen people jump off of there, and they're all right." So I'm going to do it.
0: I'll start pushing us to to close, but I am curious about your overall message. What did you learn from reading this? Um, as someone who lived during this time, what were the main lessons for you? <sighs>
1: I, again, knew kind of what was going on, uh, but it was way in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't say I didn't take it seriously. It's just that I kind of didn't care. It was just something going on. And it wasn't until I read this, uh, even the whole Martin Luther King thing, um, I knew who he was. You know, he was... uh, black people really depended on him for something probably that he couldn't really deliver who knows, but he was like going to be their savior and right. and everything. Uh, but all that went on. But then when I read this, she puts it in such great language, such a great tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I read again about a lot of the lynchings, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of other stuff, um, the guy from the army who came home uh, and wore his uniform—I think I told you about that, didn't I? I don't
0: think so. Yeah,
1: he wore his uniform, and this, you know, cracker or red, whatever you call it, the white people, walked up to him and said, "You ain't got no business wearing that uniform in the street. You know, you step down when I walk by, and everything. And if I see you wearing that uniform again, it's going to be hell." And then four days later, they found the guy in his uniform killed in, in a river. Mm. They had beat them, uh, and I never knew things like that went on. Um, Some people they were in the Second World War said they couldn't understand why black people were in the war. Then they went home and got treated like that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I don't know what I would have done. I I don't know. (laughs) I think about it, and and I, I, I can't come up with an answer. I say, what would I have done? And when I went in the Navy, it had only been desegregated like a year before that. And I had no idea that the armed forces were segregated. But, you know, I learned a lot reading this. Um, I'm so glad I read it. I'm just so glad I read it. Uh, I feel kind of fulfilled Mm. about my, uh, my beginnings don't to know
0: how long you're going to be cuz dinner's ready. 5 more
2: minutes. Okay.
0: okay. So, yes, dinner is ready. Uh, so I yeah, I can hear Aunt Karen and my dad talking. We're picking them up right now. I could I've been hearing my little cousins playing and upstairs and stuff and I can smell the food. So, let's um it, it, we always end right with a favorite quote or passage and you shared some. Do you have another that you can close us out with?
1: Uh, just the um Stoop to Conquer one, I think, was, wait a minute, where is it? Um, The white foreman called him to the front when it was his turn for an interview. Boy, do you go to school? The foreman asked. "Uh, Yes, sir, I do, he said. I just completed my first year at Leland College. Boy, if you go to college, you don't need a job as a janitor. A few people, white or black, in uh, Quichiana County or whatever, had a chance to go to college resentments ran deep, especially when it came to a colored boy getting to go on when some southerners were still debating whether colored people were worth educating at all. To many educated colored to many educated colored people and it would upset the whole balance of power in the caste system and give other colored people ideas. Anyhow, um, later that summer he went looking for work in the sawmill he saw a classmate uh, there from high school and was told the work wasn't too hard. It was stacking wood staves uh, to make barrels. Pershing asked the foreman for a job. There was nothing available, he was told. He was getting desperate. He spotted his friend stacking staves or whatever you call them. Show me how to do this. The friend showed him what to do and Pershing worked beside him. He looked up and saw the foreman watching him. Pershing pretended not to see him, and worked even harder. The foreman left, and when he came back, Pershing was still at work. At the end of the day, the foreman hired him. Pershing finished out the summer stacking staves, not minding the hard work, and not finding it demeaning. Sometimes, he said, you have to stoop to conquer.
0: Another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout-out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout-out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading!